Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. I don't have much to report in the way of New Year's messages from the world's leaders. They were pretty boring, let's say. But I do think there was some grade A trawling from Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, who turned London's iconic London Eye Ferris wheel into an EU flag during the New Year's Eve fireworks display in London. So if anyone is going to top that in 2019, they're going to have to get planning pretty soon because that was excellent trolling. Here in Brussels, it's been a very quiet week because the EU awards itself a week of closure over New Year's and Christmas, and then it gives itself some extra days off the back. So we're going to be in the full swing next week. But coming up in this week's feature interview is with Gail Smith, the president and CEO of The One Campaign that works to alleviate poverty and end preventable diseases around the world. I spoke to Gail at the tail end of 2018 when she made her most recent trip to Brussels. And The One Campaign has got year-round programs and is working very hard to increase the amount of money that the EU spends on development aid and related issues. So we talk about that and more in this week's feature interview. Welcome to the podcast, Gail. Thanks so much for having me. Now, it's always great to have a former journalist on the podcast. So I'm in particular pleased that you're joining us today. I guess I'm working on the basis of once a journalist, always a journalist. A little bit, a little bit. I actually miss it. I was a, I was a very young reporter in war zones in East Africa. And the thing that was so exciting to me is I was learning about something and I was amazed at what was going on, often horrified. But then to be able to tell the story, it was both a responsibility and a privilege. And I think just being in a position to explain things to people in a world that now goes so quickly that everything's a soundbite or a tweet, I miss it. Having the time and space to say what this looks like on the surface is actually a bit more complicated and a bit more interesting. You were posted in several African countries. You were working for outlets like BBC, Associated Press, and and then you went on, you carried on what you saw or experienced there with later work in organizations like USAID and working with the Obama administration. Yeah, I lived in Africa for almost 20 years. I was a stringer writing for the BBC and AP and a a host of others. I began doing work for some non-governmental organizations particularly at the time of the big famine in the mid-1980s, because there were not that many people who had been to the other side of the lines. There were also two major wars going on at the same time. I hadn't planned to end up in government. Uh, I was asked if I was interested. It seemed really interesting. So I served in the Clinton administration 
in the last two years, but then the entire eight years of the Obama administration, both at the White House and then running USAID. And you went on and founded an organization that works to prevent genocide. Right. Now, I'm just guessing here, but was that born out of any experiences or frustrations at the Rwandan genocide, or was it driven by other factors? It even started, I think, earlier than that. I co-founded that with a friend named John Prendergast, who's worked on Sudan and a number of issues for a long time. And we had worked together for a long time. And I think found that there are a number of crises around the world that were hidden to the world. The world wasn't paying attention. If the world had paid attention, there was the possibility to prevent them or end them more quickly. But the key to that was citizens being organized enough to both hold their governments to account and demand that governments act, but also give governments credit when they do act. Because responding to crises around the world isn't always the most politically popular thing to do. So press governments to act, but give them credit when they do. Now, what's bringing you to Brussels this week? And what have you been finding since you got here? I'm here with our team in Brussels, which is small but mighty and has done great work with the EU over many years because we're campaigning on the EU's budget, the MFF, and making the very strong, passionate, and I think completely rational and wise case that the aid, the assistance component of the budget needs to reach 140 billion euros. So we've been having meetings with various officials. We had Bono here the day before yesterday doing a number of meetings. And it's gone really, really well. I'm really encouraged. And do you think that is because your interest in making sure this development is supported in Africa is starting to intersect with some more pressing political needs where we're seeing new instruments for funding related to managing migration and things like that? I I feel there is a bit of a a bubbling up of this political incentive inside the system. I think there are some political incentives, but I think there's something else happening at the same time. If you think about the next 20, 30, 40 years, and you have Europe next to Africa, you've got two big, vibrant economies that together, on the basis of absolute common interests, can play a huge role in the global economy as we go forward to their mutual benefit. And that sitting down at the table as equals to kind of work through, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Europe, I think, needs and could benefit from the African market. Similarly, Africa looks to Europe as really its key market for trade and commerce outside the continent. So I think there are also opportunities here. There's the present-day reality, yes, that spurs a lot of attention and debate and discussion about, oh, my, what do we do? But again, look out 10, 20, 30 years, and there's a huge opportunity sitting right in front of us. Well, there's that whole idea of demography being destiny, where you just look at the sheer numbers of Africa. Africa's rising, no matter what anyone thinks about it, whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, something they want to be a part of or avoid, it's coming. And Europe needs to get ready for that. Yeah. And I mean, I personally think it's a great thing. I mean, having had the privilege of spending much of my life there, watching where Africa is coming and going right now, what's really interesting is that at a time when in Europe, there's a lot of debate about the very idea of Europe, in Africa, there's increased focus on a common market. Exactly, the African Union. It's making big steps. And the African Union is making big steps. It is Africa took a common position on negotiating the Sustainable Development Goals, common positions on climate change, common positions on a number of things. So it's a big block that's increasingly unified. They're talking about a continental free trade area. 
and the idea of a big African market because they know that that will put them in a stronger position than a number of smaller economies. So Africa is looking at increased unity politically and economically at a time where I think unity is under some threat on the European side. I think there's a lot to learn from Europe's experience and the EU's experience in, in, in fact, forging the EU. But it's a hugely important time. And the demography, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, in Africa, the AU has led a whole process and discussion over the last couple of years on something called the demographic dividend. What does Africa need to do to make sure that its huge youth boom is a benefit as opposed to a cause for crisis? Now, that's a big task, so I don't want to underestimate that. Now, maybe if we chat a little bit about the One campaign and how yeah. you organize yourselves. So a bit of background on me. I once worked for a man called Peter Garrett, and we always talked about him in Australia as like the Australian Bono, where he was a big rock legend, went yeah. into politics. He was an environmental activist as well. And, and so I worked for him as a media advisor, and it was both the best thing and the most frustrating thing that he brought his fame to the table uh-huh. because it opened so many doors, and then people would just be dazzled, and they couldn't look past the rock legend when we'd be trying to make a serious point sometimes. So I was wondering, how do you make the most of someone like Bono or the other celebrities who get involved and yet don't dilute the substance of what you're doing? That's a good question. Like I've, I've known him for a long, long, long time. And one of the things he's got, in addition to fame and a pretty good voice and a good band and all of that, he knows the issues. He's smart, and he really cares about it, and that comes across. So that, yes, he brings his fame into the room, and people may be excited to meet Bono the rock star. I think by the time he leaves the room, they sort of feel like, whoa, that's Bono the smart activist. So that's very helpful, uh, because he really does his homework and knows, as I say, really knows these issues. The other thing he does is he gives real credit to his team. He doesn't hog the limelight, which is a very nice thing. So we had a whole team there, including from Brussels, in the meetings we just had here, and he's the first to point to other people and point out the leadership in the organization and the youth ambassadors in the organization, all the people that do the day-to-day work. So he's not one to take all the limelight at all. One other slightly tough question. When you look at the One campaign and how it's different from other organizations, one thing that really strikes me is that you've got a very successful, at least by your own metrics, I'm sure, um, way of partnering with large corporate brands. And some activist advocacy organizations, they wouldn't say that's the right way to do things. They prefer to just sort of operate in a different fashion. So tell me a bit about how those partnerships with people like Apple or Starbucks or Coca-Cola, you know, yeah. what, what is the dividend for the cause yeah. and how do you manage those relationships? Well, I think there's one thing about the One Campaign that intrigues me, but I find it challenges me every day because I've got my own opinions about lots of things is this premise that if there's one thing we can agree on, let's work together on that. So in the United States right now, for example, where I would say we are as divided as we've ever been in my lifetime, we are working on the basis of bipartisan support for the fight against AIDS or for new legislation on development. And it's because people are willing to say, we may disagree on everything else, we agree on this one thing, so let's do that. So that's something that I think informs the way that we work. Like what you're referring to is what's done through RED. And Mm -hmm. RED is a part of the one campaign that was created to help spur forward the fight against AIDS in two ways. One was 
generating funding from business, but the other was using business and products and brands and iconic brands to get people's attention. So Red partners with some of the companies you mentioned to do a color red telephone. A portion of the proceeds go to the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria, and Red over the years has raised close to half a billion dollars. Now, I would say that's a pretty good deal. It's growing. There are more companies interested in it. It's working. The Global Fund is absolutely key in the fight against HIV and AIDS and has made huge progress. We are at a point right now where if we don't keep up that progress, we're going to be in serious trouble. I saw you tweeting about this over the summer, the risk of a new global pandemic. Not yeah. that we quite got rid of the last one, maybe, but tell me a bit more about that. Are we getting complacent here on this issue? I think we've experienced that at one, and I think the red team would certainly say the same. That In an interesting way, the world's success in fighting HIV and AIDS is feeding a little bit of complacency. There was a time where we all know where it was. there was fear, there was terror, there was the pain of people not wanting to talk about it and shunning people with the virus. That turned around, and I personally give a lot of people credit. I think a lot of countries stepped up. I think President George Bush stepped up in a big way and made a huge commitment through PEPFAR. The Global Fund was created. Everybody came to the table to work on it. We've achieved great progress on mother-to-child transmission, on the spread of the virus. But now I think a lot of people think, well, HIV-AIDS is not really a problem. I mean, we're finding that in the States with a lot of young people who think, you know, you can take ARVs, it's treatable, it is not the death threat that it was some years ago. The thing with a a thing like HIV, I also worked on the Ebola virus, I had a lead role in that when I was still in government, is that if we're not moving faster than the virus, it's winning. And if it's moving faster than we are, we run all sorts of risks mutations in the virus and so on. So I think it's our view that we've got to, on the one hand, let people know that we've made great strides and we've been really successful. We know how to do this. But on the other hand, light a bit of a fire under everybody to say, do not stop now or we're going to be in serious trouble. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Any final messages for the people listening across Europe? Um, and I say this as the head of the One Campaign, I also say this as, a, as an American and somebody who's been in this development space for a long time. I think people need to know that Europe's leadership matters. It would mean, for example, in addition to other things, 33 million kids a year in school. Every European should be proud of the fact that over the years, Europe has been getting kids in school ensuring that mothers are healthy, making countries more stable. And people know it, and it matters. People look to Europe as having done that. And I guess what I would say is keep leading. The world needs you. The world respects you. You can do it. Gail Smith, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. Next up, it is the podcast panel. Hello, Lena Aberus. Hello, Ryan. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hello, Alva. 
Hi guys, looking forward to 2019. Well, we'll get onto some predictions or some fears later on in the discussion, but I was fairly outraged, I have to say, when I read about a Times of London investigation yesterday, so already into the new year, around Britons who have been forced into marriages overseas, then being forced to take out loans, potentially, or at least make payments in order to be repatriated back to Britain and to end their slavery by marriage. Did you guys read that article? Yes, I did. I was also a bit outraged. And the other thing is that they were forced to agree to it and then their passports were taken off them if they didn't agree to a loan kind of agreement. And Um, the intermediary here is the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Yeah, and I mean, that's very suspect, you know, like forcing people who've been forced into forced marriages to essentially agree that they're going to pay for their repatriation. And the most important thing is that they realise that they have an issue. And there's a problem. Now, Who's they? The, the Commonwealth Office or the people in the forced marriage? The Commonwealth Office. This is important that they have at least a way to bring back people home. Now, to make them pay, I think this is really striking, given that it's Great Britain. I think they have loads of money. But depending as well on the percentages and the numbers of people that they are being forced and to which parts of the world. I guess the thing we don't know is how long this practice has been underway. Mm-hmm. So there will be probably some severe repercussions for the foreign secretary that agreed to the practice in the first place, whoever that was. But I guess it's also one of those situations where, you know, as much as I would never say it's okay to charge these amounts of cash for people who are in that situation, the UK, I think, has had a long debate about the problem of forced marriages. And that is uh, something that a lot of countries don't have. So I think we might also be in the situation where the UK will get punished in the court of public opinion for actually addressing something in the same way that they address issues like diversity and racism, where they bring the problem to the surface in a way that a lot of other European countries just ignore. What are your resolutions? You have a really good one, Ryan. Uh, yeah, well, one is to cook more because I'm in trouble at home for not <laughs> to cook. And then two is... I need to reduce the number of social platforms that I'm on. And the one that frustrates me the most in terms of their policies and approach is Facebook slash Messenger. And I thought, oh, I'll go light and get rid of Messenger, but keep Facebook for my family. Turns out you cannot deactivate Messenger unless you also have already deactivated Facebook. So I think that's proved my point that Mm. I'm just going to go quiet. I'm not ready to fully delete the accounts yet, but I am going to deactivate them. What's the best way to get a hold of you, Ryan? (laughs) Email. Are you confidential, Alva? Of course. (laughs) Shall we move on to some predictions? I'm going to start with like one idea. Do you think that Merkel and May, who are probably the most embattled prime ministers at the moment, do you think they're going to... Really? Emmanuel gets a free pass? (laughs) Oh, well, that's true. He could be gone in two minutes. Like, they're all embattled. But yes, basically... Macron wouldn't, like, well, he'll, he'll probably finish out his term, no? Well, here's my prediction. Predictions are pointless in 2019. But, well, we just, <laughs> I mean, no one has any idea what's going to happen, basically, do they? Well, I think that they are the two, you know, that look the closest. You know, Merkel's already said that she's not going to stand anymore, and that's already, like, made her a little bit vulnerable. And then, obviously, Theresa May is very... Yeah. God knows what's going to happen to her in the next Well, the only month, thing that month. will save Theresa May is that no one else will want that very difficult job hmm. because there won't be much good happening in the next few months. And, that, and it's really not me making a judgment call on whether Britain should or shouldn't have voted to leave, but the whole thing's a mess. Yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> terrible job. Yeah. 
Are we going to have a male or a female president of the commission, you think? I can't see how it would be a woman, given <laughs> that it's all male candidates at this point in time. Shame, no? So I think it is Unless Aldi have... Uh, you know, the oh, famous they'll, they'll, Dane on their team. Well, they, will put, they will put women up on their team. But they won't be. Yeah. yeah. But, but if we look at what is likely to happen in the European Parliament elections, mm. the leading sort of result will be abstention in most countries. You know, it was a 42% turnout last time. It's dropped for eight elections in a row. Yeah. What are our predictions as to the percentage of the turnout? Do you think it's going to go up because of what we're facing in Europe and post-Brexit and, you know, et cetera, all the things that the EU is facing? I don't think so. I think people are okay. really uh, couldn't care less. I mean, in Give us a number, Lena. How many percent will vote? I think less than 45. Yeah, a number. 43. That's up. How much yeah, was it? was 42 it? last time. Only up by 1%. How much was it last time? 42. 42. Ah, well, maybe 37. <laughs> Ooh, okay, lower. I'd uh, say it'll be I'd say it'll be higher because there's definitely some pro-European countries who will are more likely to come out in favor and then also I think the people who don't like the EU and that's probably a growing number of people will come out as well. So I think it'll probably be about 47, maybe it'll hit 50. 46, that's my number. Okay. But the leading result in most countries will be abstention. Mm-hmm. So it's not an individual party that's the winner in most countries. It's non-voters that are the, the leading block. So I think that even if you had a very glamorous candidate like Margrethe Vestager put forward, like she'll represent 9 or 10% of the vote. Even the leading party, the European mm-hmm. People's Party, it's currently on course for 25%. So can you really say you won an election with 25% of the vote? Like you obviously, a party comes first, so nobody could deny that reality, and the EPP is certain to be that party. But I think given the fragmentation, there'll be no other party over 20% at this rate. The socialists are on 19. The Eurosceptics are fragmented. Together, they make up about 25 or 26% of the vote. But it's just a very fragmented environment and a very low turnout environment. So it's, it is a mess, frankly. Mm. And who are the outliers going to be? So obviously, there's a lot of talk about the green wave across. They're, they're actually going down. Okay. They claim otherwise. Like, if you ask them about their internal polling, they claim they might be going up to 75 seats from a current 53 seats, about 53 seats. But the polling we have says they could go down to 45. Mm -hmm. So they're doing very well in some countries and poorly in a lot of countries. It's a failure if you can't deliver on that in the European elections, I think, because lots of people think of climate change and the environment as something that should be dealt with by the European Union. So if they can't make that or deliver on that wave in the European elections, it's a bit of an indictment on the green movement, I think. Any other predictions? Well, I wonder who's going to stick around. So I know that that Phil Hogan is gunning for the trade portfolio. He's Mm. the Irish Commissioner for Agriculture at this point in time. I think he'd probably do pretty well in that job. So I I think he'd have a shot at that. Malmstrom, I mean, she'd be lucky to stay on because she's had two terms, but she's recognised as doing a good job. Uh, And it's also a bit of a mess in Sweden domestically. So, you know, she must have a shot at staying on. Navracic, his party, the Hungarian Fidesz party, they've already said they're going to nominate somebody else. So he was one of our guests in December, had hopes to stay on. Looks like they're not going to come to fruition. Mm. Jeruva, I think as well now. Commissioner Jeruva will stay on. Yeah, and that's also another tricky situation because she relies on Babish, the very embattled 
corruption scandal plagued mm. Czech Prime Minister. So, you know, obviously that party is in the pole position to nominate a commissioner. And Mr. Barnier? Hmm. Well, speculation is rife <laughs> on Mr. Barnier. <laughs> But well, uh, yeah, I want, he'll nice definitely get something, right? Something something quite... But he's had everything else except commission president and foreign high representative. Mm, oh, well, wouldn't it be interesting to have a, a French high representative? Well, who, here, here's, here is a good question. Who will end up as the most senior woman in the system? So regardless of position, who is going to get the crown? That's difficult to say because mm-hmm. it doesn't look like a lot of the ladies are staying on. Are so you like Yorova. What about your boss? Is she <laughs> willing to to I get a new job in 2019? Tell you anything about that? Um, That's Hella Tony Schmidt, Alba's no. <laughs> boss at Save the Children. President? No, no, uh, no, no, no. I can't. The, I would never comment on that. Um, no, but uh, I, yeah. Well, the question was who senior would stay on and who will be the top. Well, it's d- they don't have to stay on. It can be a new person. Well, what? it would be good to have a president of the parliament that was a woman. Because it looks like we're not going to get a commission president that's a woman, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they'd have to trample on Giva Hofstadt's head. I mean, he's not going to give that one up lightly. I think what matters is to be a quality woman and a woman that would push for other women in the middle management and with all the scandals of this commission, with the Me Too movement, with many things. I mean, they didn't really go out. We haven't seen Madame Malmström or Madame Mogherini who went out of their way and said, OK, this is what we have done in our institutions. So if we have a woman in these positions for the next commission... I truly hope that they do something for women, women, rather than just hold on on the position. That's a good note to finish on. Thank you so much for joining us back for another fun-filled year on EU Confidential. Lena, Alva, until next week. Until next week. See you next week, guys. Thank you once again for listening. Remember, if you haven't already joined our community, you can do so at politico.eu forward slash registration. We're going to have our very first live taping of uh, EU Confidential, but that will be in our Davos Confidential edition up the mountain at the World Economic Forum in January. So keep tuned for that special week of podcast episodes daily at the end of January. And if you can take a minute to rate or review us, that will help increase our visibility on the platform where you found us. And it means that more people can find out about podcasts and you'd basically get good karma for the rest of the year. So please do that. Podcasting is a team effort. So thanks, as always, to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.